Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, for the last time in like three weeks or two weeks, right? How are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing well. Yeah. Well, I'll miss you the next couple weeks. I got to find somebody. Yeah. I haven't done it. I keep like just doing it by myself, which is not best practice, but we'll figure something out for the next couple weeks without you. I'm taking a much needed vacation. Have fun wherever you're going. Hopefully it's somewhere fun. Gulf Shores. Oh, that is fun. Hey, there's a place there that they they have like a really great seafood dish called the Poo Poo Platter. So you got to get that. That's good down there. It's like a bunch of like fried fish and shrimp and stuff. It's good. Sounds Um, great. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we we have a great show. Our guest this week is Grayson Vandegrift, who is running in House District 56. That is mostly Woodford County. So it's all of Woodford County. And that's where Versailles and Midway are. He's the mayor of Midway. Um, Anybody who drives off through Louisville and Lexington, you go through uh, Woodford County. That's right there, right before you get to Lexington. But his district also includes about half of Franklin County outside of Frankfort and also a little bit of Jessamine County. This is a seat that's been heavily Democratic. It was Democratic forever and ever. I mean, the, the, the home of the Chandlers, like the Chandler family all comes from Woodford County. So, uh, But it was flipped to the Republicans in 2020. So Grayson Vandergrift is on the show. He's trying to flip back the 56th into the Democratic column. He is well-versed in local government. He is the mayor of Midway and talked to us a lot about what he does in, in that role. That was really interesting. And I think if he gets elected as a state legislator, he will do a really good job. So I hope he wins. Yeah, it sounds like he has done so much um, in his two terms as mayor in Midway. Yeah. And yeah, I I think this seat is, is one that I have some hope for. So I hope he wins, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think he would be a great addition to the Democratic caucus in the House if he wins, so I certainly hope he wins. We have been doing Northern Kentucky. We have a couple more Northern Kentucky races to do, but next, he's a preview of what's coming next, which we'll be doing uh, Central Kentucky races outside of Louisville and Lexington that are kind of in and around uh, Central Kentucky. So that's where we're going next. But in the show this week, we have Jasmine talking about another abortion in... Uh, Another ruling in the abortion case uh, that is making its way through the Kentucky courts in the wake of the Dobbs versus Jackson ruling, which overruled Roe versus Wade. So um, we had, uh, you know, abortion rights supporters had some good success at the lowest court level, but we have had some setbacks as the the case has gone along. And she's going to talk to us about that. And then I have a pretty substantial amount of quick hits, lots of quick hits. One was about a, a special session that we learned about yesterday. So that kind of turned into its own segments. So we got a little bit about that. And and, uh, but lots of other stuff that we want to talk about as well. So without any further ado, Jasmine, why don't you tell us about the abortion ruling from the Supreme Court of Kentucky? Okay, so we are still talking about the same case that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, this is the ACLU's lawsuit to block the trigger ban and the heartbeat bill. And so a few weeks ago, believe it was on August 1st, um, a court of appeals judge, Larry Thompson, granted Daniel Cameron's motion for emergency relief from the temporary injunction. So the Jefferson Circuit Court issued an injunction that prevented the attorney general from enforcing the law, and the court of appeals granted Daniel Cameron's motion for relief from that, so he has been able to enforce the abortion ban in Kentucky. Um, to grant the emergency leave, he had to show irreparable injury, and this Court of Appeals judge said he did that. 
Um, so now the EMW clinic um, has sought relief at emergency relief at the Supreme Court of Kentucky. Um, so to get emergency relief from a court of appeals order, they have to demonstrate extraordinary cause. And the Supreme Court has denied their motion. So that means the attorney general can can continue to enforce the abortion ban um, for the time being. But so this was just the emergency motion. It wasn't a ruling on the merits of the temporary injunction appeal. Yeah, th- this part we've gone through a couple times and it still is a little confusing. But basically there's like an emergency which is like rule right away as to what's going to happen and then mm-hmm. and then like there's a second layer which is like a little bit more like okay, here's the actual information for just like a regular injunction. And then there's like the actual case. Is that the best way to think about it? Yes. Okay. So in the opinion the Supreme Court opinion addressed two things. So it, it addressed that emergency motion. And then it also addressed a motion to transfer the case, um, the temporary injunction appeal from the court of appeals to the Supreme court. And they granted that motion. So now the, that case is before the Supreme court for final disposition. Um, and so that disposition that we're talking about here is just whether the attorney general will continue to have relief from the temporary injunction, not the full ruling on the entire case. The Supreme court ordered briefing and oral argument in the case, and they scheduled oral argument for November 15th. And of course this is after election day um, when the abortion constitutional amendment will be on the ballot. So this will not be over before election day. Right. Um, so this order though was interesting. The Supreme court was really split on this. So we have a three, two, two split essentially. So only justice Conley, Van Meter and Lambert concurred on denying the emergency relief. So their opinion, I guess is the plurality opinion, um, and then Justices Keller and Nickel concurred in result only. And then Justice Minton and Justice Hughes concurred in part and dissented in part. So all the justices agreed, at least in part. But there were there was like three people or yeah, there were three people who had one reason. And so that was like the actual reason. And then there were two other sides. Right. That's. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Yeah. I gotcha. So the Keller concurrence, which was joined by Justice Nickel, um, basically said this. Because these issues are super important, we need a full and thorough review. And she shared concerns with the dissent's exercise and discretion in granting the emergency relief. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, But she thought that if they granted the emergency relief and sent it back to the court of appeals, that would only delay the needed resolution. So she and justice nickel concurred in the result that they aren't going to grant the motion for emergency relief. Um, but thought, Hey, this is super important. And the, the reason that we're letting you do this is because we, we need to expedite this and sending it back would only further delay, um, ruling on these important issues. 
So then the Minton concurrence slash dissent that was joined by Justice Hughes, um, they concur regarding the motion to transfer it to the Supreme Court. So they all agree Yes, we're going to accept transfer from the Court of Appeals and hear this case. Okay, that's Um, actually – okay, sorry. That part was a little bit confusing to me. So when I said like everybody agreed with part of it, the only part that they really agreed with was transferring it back to the Court of Appeals. Like the actual reasoning was something that these two people dissented from, right? Yes. Okay, okay. So everyone agreed with the transfer and then five justices agreed – in denying the emergency motion and transferring it, but two of them didn't really agree with the three about whether extraordinary cause was shown. They're like, yes, we absolutely have concerns about this, but this is so important. We need to just get to it. (laughs) I think is the point of the Keller concurrence and result only. And then the Minton concurrence slash dissent is a con- they concur with the regarding the transfer, but dissent with regard to the emergency relief. Extraordinary cause has to be shown to grant this emergency motion. And Justice Minton said, well, the level of the importance of these issues rises to extraordinary cause and an abuse of discretion by a lower court constitutes extraordinary cause as well. And if if this issue isn't extraordinary cause, what is? Um, was is his point in the opinion? He said he would have found extraordinary cause, and then the next step would be to determine whether the court of appeals abused its discretion. And Minton believes that it did because they didn't give any deference to the lower court. Um, so there's different standards of review when a higher court is looking at a case. So there's something called de novo review. And when something is a question of law, um, it gets de novo review. And de novo review means we're looking at it anew. We are not giving any deference to what the trial judge did. Um, But then other issues get different types of review, like abuse of discretion. And that means that you have to give discretion to give deference to what the lower court did. um, And you can only reverse it if they abused their discretion or did something arbitrary. And here, this is an abuse of discretion standard. And Justice Minton is saying that the Court of Appeals judge did not give deference to the trial court, which when I read the Court of Appeals order, it we talked about this on the show, it was devoid of really any analysis. And... It, it did seem like they were looking at it with fresh eyes and not giving deference to the trial court's order. They didn't really talk about the trial court's order. And we talked a lot about the trial court's order, which was well-written and well-reasoned. And you gave a lot of, uh, you know, you analyzed that pretty closely. And it seemed like it was, you know, pretty well thought out and a, really, a good opinion. And it was kind of wild that the appeals court was just like, nah, we're not even going to really look at it. Right. That was kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, it. It was an emergency motion, so I didn't expect like a full 20-page opinion or anything like that, but but it did not really seem to give deference to the trial court's decision, um, and, and that's a pretty high standard. And so Justice Minton thinks that the Court of Appeals didn't do that, 
um, and he would re reinstate the injunction while litigation is pending or there's an intervening change in the law. And I think that is reference to what could happen um, after election day. Yeah, as this kind of moves forward, I mean, reading the tea leaves a little bit, we have those three Conley, Van Meter and Lambert who it seems like that they they are likely to vote against um, abortion rights. But then you have these other four and it is kind of mysterious to me. It doesn't seem like that their opinion on the actual issue is as clear as it would be potentially on those three. Do you agree with that? Or do you think all seven are mysterious or do you think that there's more clear kind of sides to this issue or what the, what the justices are thinking about? The three to me are very clear. Conley, Van Meter and Lambert are the more conservative justices. Um, and so I think that definitely tells us where they might be. I think I would call all of the others pretty moderate, just fair <laughs> right. judges. And, right. and so um, I think they were correct in like showing concern for what the Court of Appeals did. And they all seem to agree about that. Um, but I don't necessarily have a sense on how they might rule on the merits in this case. I think they may put the temporary injunction back in place um, based on how this vote broke down. But, but I'm not really certain about that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think they, they clearly want to see what happens uh, with the constitutional amendment, I think. And yeah. maybe yeah. Um, they avoid a lot of this. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing about the, you know, the election, of course, includes the amendment to vote on abortion. But, Another odd thing about it is that several of the justices are up for election, too. So, you know, this is right after Election Day. So I guess these seven justices would hear and rule on this specific part of it. But as we get to the actual court case, we could have like a different Supreme Court that would be, you know, making a judgment about the actual law. Right. The only one I think who has a race is is Justice Keller. The Minton and Hughes seats are open. And so yes, those would be two so they wouldn't they wouldn't be in office as of November fifteenth. Um a new justice wouldn't right. take they, office until January. Um but come January, Justice Hughes and Justice Minton, who dissented here, will not be there. So the oral argument for November fifteenth, is that for like the whole case or that's just for the injunction though right that's just for the injunction yes yeah, so so by the time that the actual case gets tried at the district court and they're going to appeal to go directly to the supreme court and they'll probably get that but whenever that happens that means that there will be like a different supreme court that's there that's actually ruling on this on this situation if we have to based on what, what the vote is on amendment two yeah all right woof yeah sorry that was that was a lot of legal stuff. Well, you know what? I followed it pretty well, so I feel like we're in good shape. Thank you, Jasmine, as always, for bringing us these important legal updates in, in ways that we can understand them. All right. We have lots of quick hits to get to, some of which are less quick than others, including this very first one. 
Jasmine, a whole dang special session started today. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. Uh, we were like talking about like, oh, what are we going to talk about? What do we have to say? We got this abortion thing, but what else are we going to talk about? And then yesterday we learned that they were going to call a special session. This has, of course, been rumored a little bit. It's it's about the eastern Kentucky flooding, um, but but it all kind of came together yesterday in the afternoon, and it has already begun. That I think is a pretty significant. Remember when like Matt Bevan was the governor, and they would like they talked about that special session about quasis for like six months before they like had it and then it started with like oh, no man. idea what was going on it was really confusing and then you know nobody like they adjourned without like you know it was yeah, really they didn't pass a bill right yeah it was really weird that whole thing was a mess uh matt bevan bad governor don't know if you guys remember but uh it was <laughs> it did happen we were here for it uh all right but yes we had a special session that started today uh the governor signed the call for it yesterday and, and it is about a relief to eastern kentucky in the wake of the massive flooding that's happened down there that's killed now 39 people that we know about the governor called uh the talks that led to the special session quote not partisan not bipartisan but nonpartisan." unquote i don't I don't know what that means. Uh, I thought it was a little nefarious, but some other people were corrective of me saying like, no, I just think it means he's like, we had good negotiations that led to uh, a good bill that is, that is being, that is uh, on the floor. I expect it to last probably about three days. And we did learn a little bit today about what's in the bill. The bill is being carried uh, by Robert Stivers in the Senate and then John Blanton in the house. John Blanton is the representative for Knott County. Um, Chasman, I think he's my favorite Republican. I don't know, like, I don't know who's on the list, but John Blanton's probably my favorite Republican. Um, he's the the rep from down there in southeastern Kentucky. The bill that they have worked on appropriates $212 million to flood relief in eastern Kentucky, which sets up this thing called EKY Safe, Eastern Kentucky State Aid Funding for Emergencies, which very closely ca- uh, mimics WKY Safe, which was set up during the tornadoes in January. Western Kentucky safe and you know the way that the 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 session evolved this year that was a bill that was actually passed at the very beginning of the session they did not like waste any time as soon as the tornadoes happened they got a bill on the floor it was HB5 that got it through the legislature passed both houses and signed into law so it could go into effect right away um, kind of in the same sort of way that a special session operates it only took them a few days to pass the, the you know the law. The money for the $212 million comes from the Rainy Day Fund, uh, and it's directed to local governments, public utilities, and school districts. The funds can be used to replace and renovate publicly owned buildings. We have not yet seen the bill. The reporters from the Courier Journal have seen it, so you know, uh, take a look at their reporting if you would like to. They have some uh, a nice article about what's in the bill. Uh, the money is coming directly out of the Rainy Day Fund, which is at like a record high of like $2.7 billion, so it's just kind of a drop in the bucket um, and if they think that this is going to get us through some of this that's that's good news so that's kind of what's going on with a special session uh jasmine have you been i mean obviously you've been following a little bit do you have any uh questions or clarifications that you think we need to say about this no i don't think so i you know it seems like the governor and the legislature is is kind of on the same page for once yeah um about this and i haven't been able to follow what's happened today um since I just got off work before we recorded this, but it, 
it seems like it's all going to wrap up easily. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it sounds like, you know, it was well organized. It sounded like there were good discussions, led to a good bill. You know, $212 million that of money that we do have. It's in our, we, we have the money to spend. That's what it's there for. I mean, they literally call it the rainy day fund. So there you go. Um, hopefully, hopefully it helps some people. Um, so, you know, hopefully it's it's additive and, and helps to solve some problems. There's some really significant infrastructure issues in those areas as as has been well detailed. Uh, before we leave um, the floods in eastern Kentucky, I did want to make mention of an article I saw in WFPL, the radio station in Louisville. 59 people have signed on to a lawsuit in Breathitt County that alleges that a, a coal company contributed to excessive flood damage to their property in the midst of those floods. Um, it's well known, a well-researched topic that strip mining exacerbates floods because of the way that it operates, the way that they have to clear the timber, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, these these people, these 59 people are going to actually try to prove it in a court of law and get some damages. So WFPL has been following that. And it'll be, I you know, this is a court case, I think, that has a lot of... Uh, a lot of eyes on it, including mine. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, coming to Louisville, uh, Chris Wells, um, who's one of the leaders of the 2020 racial justice protests in Louisville. He died by a gun-related suicide, according to the Louisville Metro Police Department. Um, Wells was remembered by many of the other leaders in that movement as a caring and giving person. I saw a lot of pictures of him in, in the wake of his death. Uh, but one of the ones that I think was the most popular shared around the most and, and one of the ones that I thought was the most affecting was him uh, acting as Santa Claus for children. Um, you know, obviously just a really compassionate guy. So that was that was very sad. Um, he's just one of uh, the latest leaders of the 2020 protests movements to die. I mean, we've had, you know, three or four people that have died in different ways since since that all started uh, in, in all manner of different ways. So a lot of tragic stuff that's happened around that. Um, and, and it just is... You know, tragic situation that just gets more and more tragic as time time moves along. So definitely wanted to mention that. Um, on this same topic, uh, Kelly Goodlett, who is one of the four Louisville Metro police officers or former Louisville Metro police officers who was arrested in the wake of the federal investigation into the Breonna Taylor situation, um, she pled guilty on Tuesday to one count of conspiring to violate the civil rights of Breonna Taylor. We talked about, you know, how that was the plan all the way back in the beginning. She's expected to be a star witness in the trials of the three other officers arrested by the federal government a few weeks ago. Jasmine, you predicted this. Uh, and as this story has evolved, I remember I just it was like Jasmine was all over this, like the moment that it happened. So I learned about it from you and everybody else, you know, learned about it uh, other places. But if you listen to my old Kentucky podcast, you're on top of stuff before everybody else <laughs> all right uh also staying in louisville uh the kentucky state fair shut down early on saturday night after what many people thought were gunshots um at the midway which is where the rides are around 10 p.m so the kentucky state police later said that this was just noise making devices uh, as the culprit but about nine people were still arrested so that was a weird story. I don't really know what's going on. Um, but the fair is open and operating as normal. Um, I went on Monday, uh, and it was great. Um, I have asked Louisa every morning if she remembers seeing the pigs and sheep, and she said, yeah, they were eaten. 
So she said that they were they were eating. So that that is what they were. She liked the she liked the big pumpkins. Did she see the ducks? No, they shut down the ducks. So I actually think I might go again. We went there too late oh, to no. see the ducks, which she would have gone nuts over the ducks, I'm sure. So did the ducks go to bed early? Yeah, I guess so. I didn't realize that either. <laughs> I, I was. Know they shut down the ducks. I was really upset, but yeah, we the Discovery Farm was definitely the part that she liked the best. She saw a cow and was like, "Oh, a cow!" and like ran over to the cow. It was really funny. Um, so that is, you know, if you got kids. Take them to the fair. That's that's what I have to say about that. Um, all right. Actually, you know what? If you don't have kids, take go to the fair. The fair is awesome. I love the yeah, fair. Yeah, I love the fair. <laughs> fair is great for everybody. All right. Uh, the DNC chair, the Democratic National Committee, the chair, Jamie Harrison, uh, who ran for Senate in South Carolina in 2020, he led a, r- a large rally with Charles Booker on Tuesday night. So that's good. Getting a natural, national attention on this race. So uh, that was great. Saw a lot of people there. Saw some state legislators uh, and some candidates for office that were there. Big rally. So that was that was good to see. One thing I wanted to highlight, uh, the Herald-Leader published a pretty significant amount of reporting last week by Janet Patton about whiskey fungus and the growth of the bourbon industry, especially as it related to an Angel's Envy expansion into Henry County that caught the eye of Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, author in Kentucky, he writes a lot about agrarian and rural issues. Um, He's lived in Henry County for a long time. If you know anybody who uh, is into uh, sustainable agriculture, um, they probably have a lot of his books. Uh, The reporting lays out the tension between rural residents as land is developed. That's a really well-known story in Kentucky. Just about everything that you read about our history or about things that have happened in the past includes this as at least one issue. Jasmine, did you get a chance to to read this at all or or follow much of the whiskey fungus situation as it's evolved over the past few years? I actually haven't read this one. I read a different bourbon article in the Herald-Leader this week about like the bourbon boom and is it sustainable um so i guess maybe it's like part of a, a series i don't know it is there's been a lot of good reporting uh this was the one that i that caught my eye i think it was the longest but there's been a lot of stuff that they've talked about um in terms of you know the expansion of the bourbon industry and, and kind of calling into question parts of it um the tax incentives that we use to to kind of incentivize the growth there that the whether the it's worth it um the whiskey fungus issue it's that's just such an interesting issue the whiskey fungus situation because um i think from like a scientific standpoint it doesn't cause any like bad health effects or anything but it is gross and it gets all over everything yeah and it's a huge problem for people who live there you know maybe angels envy can buy pressure washers for everybody or something and then like send their workers out to pressure wash everybody's outdoor patios like once a year or something i don't know it's but it is it is just kind of an interesting issue for sure um something that we we are paying attention to uh but yeah they are also paying attention to it at the herald leader uh, and have some good stuff so you should read it if you have the opportunity to do so half price books in louisville is an uh so half price books is a, a bookstore obviously and it's one of the companies that has uh, seen a pretty significant unionization push across the country over the past you know year or so you know we've seen a lot of companies like that starbucks here locally we've had heine brothers um, you know, there's a lot of these types of uh, retail stores that have seen a unionization push, and half price, half price books is one of them. One of the stores in Louisville filed for a union election last week. Three Starbucks locations in Louisville have elections ongoing, and Heine Brothers recently filed for an election here as well. So we had that union show a few weeks ago. Another, this is just kind of another uh, piece of evidence that this issue and the unionization kind of push in uh, our state and our country is is ongoing and growing across the state. So that's good news. 
last thing I have is that Jacory Arthur, who is a Metro Council member here in Louisville, he filed a proposal for an ordinance last week which would make Louisville's open data portal a matter of law. So Mayor Greg Fisher opened Louisville's open data portal when he first came into office. Uh, I was a huge supporter of this. It was great. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, and you know, after it's all said and done, you know, I think it may be the best thing that Greg Fisher did when he was mayor. And I think it's an unambiguously good thing that he did. A great win for transparency. A lot of great, you know, pieces of civic technology and just kind of transparency stuff um, that, that has been made available. Great stuff that's there. Um, but it the open data could absolutely be closed again if a future mayor does not support the idea. They can just close it yeah. at their whim. It only exists because Greg Fisher likes it. Um, this is a much-needed step, and I'm really glad to see Ja'Cory Arthur um, taking the step of making a permanent. Saw quotes in the article from WFPL from Cassie Chambers Armstrong about it as well, so that is great, great news. Um, definitely wanted to highlight that. All right, that's a lot of quick hits, Jasmine. you have anything to say about any of them? No, I think you covered them. So a couple positive ones there at the end with um, unionizing and open data. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is good stuff. We we talk about good stuff from time to time, Jasmine. People, yeah, they're they're usually like the quickest. <laughs> <laughs> the main stories are bad. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Grayson Vandegrift. Grayson Vandegrift is the Democratic nominee for House District 56, which encompasses all of Woodford County, as well as parts of Franklin County and a bit of Jessamine County. He is in his second term as the mayor of Midway, and before that served on the city council in Midway beginning in 2012. He's also got experience in the food service industry as the general manager of 815 Restaurant and Tavern in Midway. He's married to Katie and the father of two children. And the 56th District was a strongly Democratic seat for years uh, before Dan Fister won in 2020. And um, he's trying to flip it back. So, Grayson Vandegrift, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Robert Jasmine, thank you so much for having me on. It really is a bit of a bucket list item for me, I have to admit. I wasn't just saying that. that it's always weird to hear that. You know, we just we started this show, uh, I guess it's been a long time, but it is kind of funny that people actually listen to it. So that's good to yeah. know. Good to know. It's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, so you know, we have talked to people who've run in Woodford County uh, for several different offices throughout the years. And we do know that, you know, the Woodford County Democratic Party is one of the most well-organized county parties in the whole state. And whenever the 56th district or, you know, the judge executives race or the mayor of Versailles or whatever comes open, um, that, that group plays a pretty major part in, in fielding candidates. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you ended up running for this seat? What, what that process looked like? Were you thinking about it? Did they reach out to you? How did, how did that all work? You know, we do have a great Democratic Party here in Whitford County. Uh, and, you know, our, uh, I know you all have talked, I think, multiple times to Judge Kay, who's the chair of our party here. Uh, but the party's really good about not, um, you know, not not meddling too much in primaries. So they're really good about being fair to all Democrats. So it wasn't like I was recruited. Frankly, I had been, you know, toying with the idea. I actually considered it briefly in, uh, in, in 2020. And, and just realized that I wanted to finish my second term as mayor, uh, frankly. And, and I just didn't think my family was quite ready for this kind of race. And I'm glad I didn't run in 2020, believe it or not, because it allowed me to 
focused solely on getting our city through COVID, frankly. And I, you know, we didn't know this was coming at the time that I kind of had to make that decision. Uh, it really in 2019 when I decided to finish my, you know, to finish my second term as mayor. And I had just been reelected to a four year term. I felt, you know, kind of disingenuous to just kind of jump ship and run for state rep then. So uh, as 2021 rolled around, I frankly just saw that uh, we were being underserved in the 56. And I, I just saw a, a first term incumbent that right out of the gate, the votes he was taking made clear that he was uh, more interested in special interests than in the actual uh, needs of the people of the 56th district. So uh, I, I, what I first did, I called Lamar Allen, our 2020 candidate, because redistricting hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I called Joe Gravis, uh, who had been the most recent uh, to hold the office. Uh, and and uh, I talked to both of them first. I knew they might potentially want to run. And both of them said, we actually, you know, both of them said separate from each other. Well, I wanted you to run, actually. And and so I said, well, OK. And um, from then on, I kind of talked with my wife and, you know, it was you know, I love public service. I wanted to keep serving and uh, I could have run for a third term as mayor. But I felt like if we're going to build our bench as Democrats, we got to do it at the local level as much as we have to do it everywhere else. And we have so many good young uh, folks in, in Midway uh, who are ready to take over. So I, I just sort of jumped in and um, the field in Woodford County cleared really immediately for me. Um, and I did end up getting a primary uh, that was, that opponent was out of Franklin County. Um, but, but the party, I, I have to give our Woodford County party a lot of credit. They, they don't meddle in primaries. They're really good about that. Now, once there's a nominee, um, you know, they support you know, 110% and I'm really proud to be actually on the executive committee of the, uh, of the party as well. But, um, that's really kind of how it all started. I was in the race really, uh, even when, uh, Joni Jenkins and Derek Graham came and paid me a visit and we had a great talk. And, and from, from then I've been, um, you know, uh, hitting the ground running hard ever since. Yeah. I think you can tell that the Woodford County democratic party is strong because they always feel there's always a really great candidate running for the 56th. Um, and you mentioned redistricting. So the border shifted in your district quite a bit. So essentially you traded some more heavily Democratic areas in Fayette County uh, for some more Republican areas in Jessamine. So can you talk to us about how you're approaching campaigning in all you know, three of these counties in your district? You know, I have the philosophy is you have to go where the voter is. And so I'm a big door knocker and what I, my, you know, I have a lot more name recognition in Woodford County, although I can still build on that and I have been, but uh, where I don't have as much name recognition is in these Franklin precincts and Jessamine precincts. So what I've done from the primary through today is I have made sure to go to, I've been knocking on every door that I can that, that is, you know, you know, especially in the more dense areas uh, that are easier to knock. Uh, although I've, I'll, I'm not avoiding other areas, but those can be more of phone banking and, and uh, meet and greets and things like that. But in those areas, I have gone and knocked myself first. I, I didn't want to take any volunteers at first for a reason. I wanted to for the people to meet their, their can, the candidate and talk to them face to face. I think that's a, one of the most powerful tools in politics that's too underutilized anymore. As it comes more and more about money, a lot of candidates forget about how important uh, voters it means to voters to actually meet the person is asking for their vote. So uh, I have already knocked on every uh, uh, door in the most knockable of the precincts of Franklin County. And like I said, we'll do phone banking and, and of course mailers and those things as well for the parts that are harder to knock. And then I'll be, and I've already been in Jessamine County, but I'll be back there this weekend and the next few weeks. And then I'm going to kind of come back around to Woodford County. So my strategy, uh, and then we will be loading up more with volunteers. My strategy is trying to get as many doors as possible 
just myself first. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, my family's been great. They've allowed me to be flexible. You know, obviously I have two kids and it's important to me to get home at night and put them in bed. But, uh, but the rest of the time, my family's been really great about allowing me to get out there and do it. And it's been, uh, it's made all the difference. And that's why I feel like uh, we've got a really, really good chance of flipping the seat. Yeah. And I think, so the Jessamine County piece of the district is, is kind of similar to Woodford and Franklin in that it includes a small city, um, which is Wilmore and is ex-urban in character. You know, do you feel like you've been able to build relationships in Jessamine County so far? And is there anything interesting you've learned about this new piece of your district? Well, you know, the, the first thing, you know, when I thought about, I, I totally get why they put Jessamine in. All right. It's not any mystery. Um, but uh, keep in mind that my opponent is new to them as well. So uh, he also has to go out and meet these people for the first time. And so, you know, Jessamine is heavily, heavily Republican. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm fully aware of the, the difficulties on the ground there. But, you know, I'll be honest with you, knocking on doors uh, most folks aren't really going to, you know, get into issues there. I think they're mostly impressed that somebody came and knocked on their door. And when mm -hmm. I went to Jessamine County the first time, especially, I could tell I was the first person to alert them. They were in a new district and I was the first person to knock on their door in a long time. Uh, now I don't know if that's because they haven't had competitive races or if people just aren't getting to those areas, but, uh, I think that's why it's a big advantage to get out early. And frankly, I've been the only person knocking on doors in this race uh, so far, at least. Uh, and I think that builds an advantage, you know, and we have we, we have a path to winning. Uh, and and we I understand that the ground adjustment is, is harder than the ground in other places. But the very night redistricting came out, we were ready. We had been kind of tipped off. This is what was going to happen because people talk too much, it, it, it appears. And uh, we ran the numbers. And frankly, Democrats carried the 56th district in 2018 as it is today. They carried it in 2018 between Derek Graham, Joe Gravis, and Kathy Carter. Uh, so we knew right off the bat this thing's winnable. Uh, and like I said, I've been hitting the ground hard ever since. And I, I, really, I, haven't, I really haven't taken a day off, to be honest with you. I'm not going to at this point uh, through, through November 8th. Yeah, and Andy Bashir also carried the 56. As it's drawn up now um, in 2019, so it's it's not not unusual to see Democrats do well in this area. So that's that's good to know. Um, all right, so you know one thing that kind of makes you different than a lot of the people that we've talked to in the 2022 election so far is you have extensive experience in public service. You know, you're in your second term as the mayor, and, and you know, you're making the jump from local politics to running for state legislature. So not only is it different levels, but also it's a different office, right? It's you, you're a mayor, you're in charge, you're doing stuff, and then all of a sudden become one of 100 people in the House or one of 138 people uh, in the legislature altogether. So, you know, it is different, but of course, it, it it is still public service, it's still working in the government. So in, in some ways, it's, it's going to be the same. So, you know, can you tell us how you expect the job that you want is going to differ from being the mayor of a small city and, and how you're going to approach uh, doing that job. Yes. So it is, it's extremely different, especially I've been the mayor of a, in a mayor council format and any uh, of my fellow, uh, you know, city uh, nerds who know about, you know, this kind of, this type of, of these structures, you know, it's the, it's the most powerful form of mayor in Kentucky. And, and, and it's, it's a big, big difference between a member of the legislature. I was a member of a city council before that, of course. So I, I, I totally understand the feel of being, you know, part of a body, you know, and uh, I think one of my best skills is my capacity to learn. Uh, you know, when I became a city council member, I was 30 years old. I, I had not grown up as someone who was 
planning on getting into politics. It just, the, the bug kind of bit me about wanting to get in local government. And I was able to learn enough that I, I, you know, I hadn't even planned on running for mayor two years after, but the support was there and I felt like I could do the job better than, than, than anybody else. And, uh, and I got in there and, and, you know, when I first got in, I realized I didn't know everything. And, and I think that's too, that's a lost art in politics is remembering that you don't know everything. And then it's okay to listen to people. Uh, but, you know, being one of 100, especially in our case right now, as Democrats, it's a super minority. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how much that shifts in November. Uh, but my my real abilities as a leader come down to my ability to work with other people. And I'm coming from a nonpartisan point of view. I've been in public office now for 10 years as nonpartisan. What I love about starting at the city level, and I do think more state representatives should start at local level first, is you truly learn how to govern by working together. And my goodness, do we not need more? Of, well, we need so much of that now. We just don't have. Uh, and, and we don't need more of the partisanship that we have. We, we really need more of this idea of working together. So I can bring that. I can be a, a, a fresh voice. But mostly I understand that if I'm elected, you know, I got to learn. I, I got I to gotta bide my time. I have to, you know, be part of the team. And I've done it before as a council member. And, you know, my capacity to learn, I know, will allow me uh, to uh, – you know, to, to, to make good decisions on behalf of my constituents. And that's, that's really what I wanted. It's what I've done as a mayor. I, I believe in listening to people, their needs, and then going out and accomplishing those things. And I, and I don't feel like I've done my job until I have uh, accomplished the, the needs that people have said that they need to, to be met. And that's what I want to do as a state, as a state representative as well. Makes sense. Public service, right? It is serving yeah. the public, whether you're a legislator or an executive. So, you know, we've got a lot of listeners in Louisville and Lexington, for sure, and in Northern Kentucky as well. Northern Kentucky is probably not the best example for this question. But, but you know, you're the mayor of the second largest city in Woodford County, uh, Midway. Um, and for, for folks who live in more urban areas, you know, you know, we assume people know a lot of stuff when they're listeners to our show, but they don't know everything. And I think that there's a lot of people that are like, what does the mayor of Midway do? So, I mean, let us in on this. What is it like being the mayor of Midway? What do you do? What are the problems you're facing? with and how do you solve them? You know, I, I think part of being a mayor is definitely has some of the parks and rec stuff that the average person kind of thinks about. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. We've had some of those public forums where my friends afterwards said, you just looked like Leslie Nope up there. I have to admit. <laughs> but it's really just a small piece of the pie. It's actually uh, it's actually much more exciting and, and the, the kinds of change you can make are really, uh, really inspiring because if you look at what we've done the last eight years uh, is right off the bat, you know, in Midway, my first week in office as mayor, our city clerk said, look, if we don't find a way to increase revenue, uh, we're going to be insolvent in 10 years. And, um, you know, that's a daunting thing to hear when you're in your first. Like, I was like, I thought I was supposed to get some kind of honeymoon or something. You know, what is this? But we got together um, with all the, the major you know, players and the movers and shakers and, and different interests that had been competing and we just got everybody on the same page and understanding that, look, Midway has a hundred year old infrastructure. We don't have enough of a job base. We have an empty industrial park uh, that had been purchased by the city and county in the 90s and had failed. And then, of course, the Great Recession happened and it, and it got even worse. Uh, and by this point, you know, timing is everything. And, and we were fortunate to, you know, I was fortunate to be in, in, in office when, when the industrial economy was coming back. And 
Um, by working with all those disparate parties and organizations, we la- we finally turned around Midway Station. We we what's, what's the name of our industrial park? We landed some bigger employees and some smaller employees, and of course, the the biggest name of all was Lakeshore Learning, who's now uh, they're they're shipping more than half of their entire distribution. They're based out of California, but they're shipping more than half of everything they ship in the United States from Midway, Kentucky, and and, and all that together made us. A, a, an economic engine in the area. Frankly, we we tripled our occupational tax revenue when I first became mayor. Uh, we were bringing in about three hundred grand a year, and this most recent uh, year we brought in one point three million dollars. Uh, it's a, it was a windfall for us. And then we start. You know, we've been bringing this money steadily in over the years, and. We immediately began investing. We began investing in, in those old uh, water and sewer lines that we needed to update, invested in roads, uh, improving sidewalks that tree roots had just made uh, incredible trip hazards, making the city more walkable. Um, we got volunteers involved. You know, the, a lot of our volunteer base had felt like, the, you know, from, for whatever reasons, uh, they weren't really invited to participate in government. And, and, and through a bunch of volunteers, we totally revitalized our park. Uh, Walter Bradley Park is now one of the jewels of central Kentucky. And, and we funded that as a city, but it was that painstaking labor, that free labor of volunteerism uh, that helped us get across the finish line. And their, and their passion literally uh, turned what was essentially, you know, uh, fields in, into truly a park. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, we even had money left over to cut taxes, and, and a lot of Democrats don't don't talk about that. But what I believe firmly is that it's okay if we're cutting regressive taxes, especially if we're not cutting services. We we expanded our services. We've provided more service now to our citizens than we ever did before. But in Midway, what you had was because of the lack of occupational tax, property taxes had risen. And property taxes are one of the worst regressive taxes there are. They disproportionately affect poor folks and working families more than anybody. We've lowered them up to 40 percent over the last eight years. And what that does is that keeps families in Midway that have had that have been moving out. Uh, and it and it gives people uh, who are working and, you know, earning those paycheck to paycheck, um, uh, you know, their, their lives revolve around that paycheck to paycheck, uh, and which which I mean, I still do to some degree myself. Um, and, and I've certainly been there for most of my life. Uh, it, it makes a big difference. We we paid off all our, our debts um, and we were able to lower our sewer rates, which, again, you know, I knew I knew the folks who struggled the most. I saw them coming into City Hall trying to pay their water bill, trying to avoid cutoffs. And uh, by lowering those rates, 25 percent, we were putting 20, 30 dollars back in people's pockets each month. And and what made, you know, what made the hardest days worth it as being mayor were the, you know, like the single mother that came up and said, I've got an autistic child and, you know, it costs so much more you know, to keep him uh, healthy and safe and happy. And, and that extra $20 a month, you have no idea what it means to me. And that makes the hardest days worth it. So we've done a lot of fun things, exciting things and things you don't really um, think about maybe cities doing. And we did it because we work together, frankly. And, and uh, it's just, you don't see enough of that in government anymore. Everybody kind of wants to, uh, you know, we, we go off into our, our, our chambers and we kind of, uh, uh, we isolate, we go into our tribes, but when you actually can bring people together, it's amazing what you can accomplish. And it's, it's been a heck of a lot of fun these eight years. Yeah. It sounds like you've been busy. Well, I took it very seriously too. I mean, you're going to get out of whatever you put into something. And uh, I took it very seriously. It never, um, when people would, you know, I meet people say, Oh, mayor Midway, how cute, you know, I, I was kind of like, well, <laughs> I don't get what's so cute about it, but, uh, but okay, I'll, I'll take that. So we, uh, uh, but you know, I, I just encourage people that, 
know, if you're really interested in government, start start small, start start mm-hmm. at local levels, run for school board, run for city councils, run for mayor. Uh, too many folks, in my opinion, want to just jump right to those bigger levels, and I, I think you're missing out on a lot of uh, a lot of important things that teach you about government, but also uh, you can accomplish things that truly affect people's everyday lives. And again, all politics is local. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we want to talk to you about issues before we let you go. You know, you're running for office in a part of the state where Democrats have been successful, but has been trending Republican the last few cycles. Um, what part of the Democratic message is and is not resonating with the voters in the 56th right now? You know, we're a big tent party. The, you know, the Democratic Party in general is. We always have been. No different about uh, Democrats in our area. You know, Democrats in our area are, uh, are, are, are there's liberal uh, there is conservative Democrats. There's a, there's a lot of conservative mm-hmm. Democrats. I might argue that most of the Democrats in the 56 might be what might be considered more conservative Democrats. Um, but we have plenty of, of liberal progressive Democrats. And, and you know, I think there are some things that the, the national Democratic platform uh, have heard us here. Um, I, you know, I, I, I know that there's I got friends in Louisville that don't want to hear me say this, but um, I don't think universal basic income is is, for example, I don't think that tra- that trends well here in the 56th district. Uh, and and I think it's hard for people to get their heads around in, in Woodford County, and Franklin and Jessamine County. So, you know, I, I think that's one thing that we have to be, you know, be honest about. And, you know, you have to vote your district. Right. I mean, you, you know, folks that are in districts where that's popular and the people want it. That's called representation. It's called listening to your people. But I, it's not something that I you know, I've not had one constituent or one potential constituent for state representative, you know, ask for something like that. Um, I think, you know, public education is a very important issue to people here in this area. It's one of my top, uh, you know, one of my most important uh, uh, platform ideas. I, but look, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I've noticed a noticeable shift since Dobbs uh, on Roe v. Wade. And, and you know, um, you know, I, I, I believe in a woman's right to have uh, her choice over her own health care. We have a very personal story, me and my wife, that uh, is a story for another day. But, but you know, in a sense, we, you know, we lost a child at 18 weeks in utero. And throughout the whole process, it felt like the state legislature was in the room with us. It, it, you know, so I know what that feels like. My wife knows what it feels like. And it made her trauma even worse, frankly. Um, and, and I felt a noticeable shift on the ground after Dobbs about that. I, I, I mean, I'm not just talking about Democrats here. I mean, I'm talking about um, even more moderate Republicans who think, you know, for example, my opponent does not believe in exceptions. Uh, uh, even rape or incest, for example, don't believe in those exceptions. And, and I, I talk to people all the time who are more conservative, say they just cannot wrap their heads about around how that's okay. Uh, so I think those issues, you know, are going to be potent. I, I think, I think issues around, of course, pensions and, and make, making sure we're funding the ARC and that we are, uh, you know, the ARC and that we are, uh, uh, you know, making sure that this, this pension promise, you know, stays to these state employees and, you know, our, our, our retirees uh, haven't had a, cost of living adjustment in 11 years. I mean, it's long overdue for that. And I think another thing that's potent, I think, is just fair tax reform. I think what Republicans have done with this income tax is a disaster waiting to happen. They're banking on it being more like Florida or Tennessee. It's going to be more like Kansas, frankly. Uh, And some of these legislators are going to, legislators are going to be voted out and they'll be out of town by the time that their calamity uh, hits uh, the way it's going to hit us. And I think those are all powerful, uh, powerful, messages here in the 56th. Uh, but my, by no means is, is this, um, 
you know, do, do I hear the majority of, of my voters asking uh, for something that is, you know, what I would call, you know, kind of might work in, in Louisville or parts of Lexington as much. And the truth of the matter is the point of being a representative is listening to your people, listening to what they want and then voting accordingly. And uh, it's perfectly our message is perfectly in step with the Democratic Party. And what's great about our party is we actually allow different voices to exist in it. The Republican Party is cutting out those voices. Even those moderate voices are getting pushed out. And uh, I think that they're making a huge mistake there. And I think it's always wise of us as a party to remain big tent and allow different ideas. And I'm perfectly fine with Democrats who who want certain things like universal basic income. It's not personally something that, that, that I agree with. And I don't hear it uh, being a need, for example, in the 56th. Yeah, it's we just can keep continuing to hear um, the effect that the Dobbs decision has had even on more moderate constituents. We, we've been interviewing candidates in Northern Kentucky for weeks. And some of those candidates have um, really conservative parts of their districts like Boone County. And, and they've all said that the Dobbs decision has been something that voters bring up every time. Um, so it, it is crazy. Robert and I have talked about how um, a lot of Democrats would, would shy away from talking about that. And now it's something that's become such a big issue in this election. Um, no. Sorry. Go ahead, Jasmine. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, the even when they passed this trigger law and, and I have friends who are Democrats in the state legislature who voted for that. Don't get me wrong. But I think it was you're, they're voting for that in a hypothetical time. Yeah. You know, because we I think we all believe Roe would never be overturned. Uh, remember, Roe was passed by a by by a Supreme Court that had conservative and liberal justices that had been appointed by both parties. This decision was passed by one party's judges, uh, and I, I really, you know, in, in the past, when someone asked you what party uh, you are, I think eight or nine times out of ten, that was a Republican wanting to know that. Frankly, that that, that was just my, you know, it, it's. You know, it's not a scientific mm-hmm. poll or anything, but that would be my guess. Eight to nine out of ten folks have said, what party are you are Republican? I've noticed a noticeable shift in that question being more Democrats since Dobbs. And I was out there the Saturday after the, the, the official decision came out, not not, not the leak one. Uh, and I started getting that question and, and it was Democrats asking that. Um, so I, I've noticed a um, I've noticed a sizable shift. That's one piece of the pie here. It's extremely important. But, you know, we've also got to focus on public education. I mean, it is a, it is a, such a shame what these Republicans have done and are trying to do to public education. And that is a huge issue in my district that I hear about a lot, too. So there's a lot of pieces of this pie. But there's no doubt that Roe is going to be a, a potent factor in this election. And I think we knew that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels like the winds have shifted on, on it, frankly. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about issues that have been important to the voters that you're talking to. Um, but if you're elected in Frankfurt, what are some issues that you expect to champion or provide your leadership on and things that you're most passionate about? Well, obviously, just having the, the uh, a city with a hundred year old infrastructure, uh, you know, I, I, I do have a bit of a passion for upgrading these things. And, and you know, one thing we've seen with uh, climate change, for example, that's just a pocketbook issue is rainfall. And the reason it's a pocketbook issue is that um, uh, the, the, we, we have to upgrade our infrastructure here in Midway. We have, we have to do it for this new reality because it doesn't just rain anymore. It feels like it's either drought or it's deluge. And it's literally cost us money because of, the, of, of issues that 
created from a lot of it really is uh, overflow of storm sewer systems that are going into sanitary sewer systems. And that becomes very complicated, costly. And frankly, there's the health risks involved in that. Uh, and, and, you know, when I tell citizens, you know, this is going to start costing us more money in taxes, I'm afraid, if we can't, you know, uh, uh, find a way uh, to, you know, to, uh, to see some kind of ease on this. And we're not going to solve, you know, issues like climate change here on, on these levels. I understand that. But uh, those are the pocketbook issues that I am, have been talking to people about. Pocketbook issues like uh, a fair tax code that, you know, it's easier to get a tax break in Kentucky if you buy a yacht than it is if you buy a motorboat. Uh, and it's, it, you know, like I said, we talked about, we cut regressive taxes in Midway, but my opponent, he, his claim to fame is that he sponsored the bill to eliminate property taxes for, for private jet owners. We need a fair tax code that actually serves the people of Kentucky. And it's not just a handout to the rich. And I talk to people on doors about this and it is a, uh, it is a, it's a popular item of discussion. I mean, I, I'm just not getting too much, uh, headwind on that. People really, uh, do believe it is ridiculous what you know that that you know these th this income tax break you know the kind of breaks it's going to be for rich folk is not even close to the breaks for people like you and me or just working class folks and those who you know who are poor uh, so uh, you know that's a huge issue I, I am very passionate about public education I, I look I have no problem with a charter school or a private school I've been in both public and private schools throughout my life to be honest with you but public schools are the only way to ensure that every child, has an unfettered start in the race of life and it, a public school serves anyone and public tax dollars should not be going to privately run for-profit charter schools. And, and this House Bill 9, which my opponent voted for, why I can't figure out these this, these charter schools that this money will be going to are hundreds of miles from the 56th district. And, and, and that's money we could use here in the 56th for our schools in Franklin and Woodford and Jessamine counties. Uh, and 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 those are things that I will be on day one a champion of, which is just not happening now in the 56th district. We do not have someone who's supportive of public education. The other thing, though, is transparency. And most people don't get excited about transparency. They're not really sure how it affects their lives. But to me, to be a good representative, you have to be uh, open and honest about what you're doing. You have to do things in the light of day, which aren't happening right now in the state legislature. But you also have to be willing to call people back. You have to be willing to email people. And, you know, I might be the only mayor in Kentucky who does this, but I put my phone number on the city website, my cell phone number. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, no one's abused that. Well, I guess like one or two people have abused it. But, but for the most part, no one's abused that. Uh, and I just believe that we got to get back to where representatives are actually uh, not only representative, but they they are they're there to the people. That's what I love about being a mayor. I can't hide anywhere, you know, and, and a state representative should be no different, frankly. It should be easy to get a hold of a state representative. And that's something I want to bring back to the seat is that I will be accountable I will be easy to reach and you'll know what I'm doing. And you're, you know, not, I'm not going to do anything in dark. I'm not going to do anything in secret. If there's a bill we're working on, my constituents are going to know about it because I want to know how they feel about it. And that's just not happening right now. Yeah. I remember one time we were interviewing uh, Josie Raymond the first time that she was on the show and uh, she just like read her cell phone number like out on the show. And I was like, you really want to do that? And, you know, apparently like it doesn't, it's not so bad. People just call you and, and talk to you about issues, which is important. I also really love to hear you being passionate about, uh, infrastructure in smaller cities because i mean any place where there's a lot of people you have similar infrastructure needs but the way in which you go about fixing it is so much different in a place like midway or versailles than it is in a place like louisville or lexington and the way that the state government intersects with that is such a different situation as well so you know that's that's 
something that's really important. And like you said, there's just not that many people with government experience at that level who know what that's like. So it would be a huge addition to have you in the legislature. And of course, always great to have more people that care about public education. That basically just means more Democrats, though. So that's uh, that's that's good. Um, all right. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, great to hear from you. Love uh, what you're passionate about. So if people do want to learn more about about you or if they want to get involved in your campaign, how can they do that? Well, the easiest way probably is to go to my website, which is Grayson4KY.com. That's the, the, the word for. So F-O-R-4, K, uh, Grayson4KY.com. Uh, and there's ways to volunteer, sign up. There's more about my, the issues uh, that I feel passionately about and how to reach me. And again, my cell phone number's on there. So if anybody ever wants to call me or email me, please do. Uh, I, I have, uh, I've, I've made a little reputation, especially in Midway, but also in Woodford County as being a very open and uh, easy to reach uh, uh, elected official. And uh, if I'm elected to the state uh, legislature, that's not going to change one bit. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. Robert, Jasmine, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for letting me check this off my, my political bucket list. <laughs> Jasmine, how can people find out about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter with our show notes that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you, and we will see you next week.